Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. As Fat Tuesday draws near, we've got a second helping of Mardi Gras fun for you. Most people are familiar with the images of carnival revelry, the crowds, the parades, the flowing libations. But like every other season in New Orleans, Mardi Gras is also all about the food. This week, author and photographer Sally Asher takes a break from her professional endeavors to talk about the various ways she celebrates the carnival season, from roller skating down St. Charles Avenue to riding high atop a parade float to dancing in the streets. More importantly, she shares her very specific dining and drinking preferences during each of the season's big events. Next, Devin DeWolf recalls how his crew of red beans has evolved from being a small neighborhood walking parade to becoming a nonprofit community force dedicated to feeding the city's culture bearers. Finally, Carnival historian Errol Laborde examines Mardi Gras origins and gives us a glimpse into the private crew parties that take place before the riders mount their floats. So let's eat, drink, and be merry because it's carnival time on this week's Louisiana Eats. At its heart, Mardi Gras is an opportunity for self-expression, a time to walk away from the workaday world, to take a break from other people's expectations, and to let one's true self come out and play a while. During the season, there are images of it everywhere. A roller derby team clad in tank tops and shorts confidently skating down the street and unabashedly showing off their girl power. Traditional parade floats with dozens of riders drawing inspiration from the mythological figures for whom their crews are named. Names like Muses, Nix, or King Arthur. A rider proudly tossing her unique throw, a woman's high heel shoe that she spent hours artfully decorating, transforming forgotten footwear into treasured keepsakes. And you won't want to miss the smaller neighborhood walking parades put on by folks who share a similar passion, like the science fiction-themed Chewbacca's Parade. At one time or another, Sally Asher has been part of all of these images. She's here to give us a behind-the-scenes look at the world of dyed-in-the-wool Mardi Gras mania. Hi, I'm Sally Asher. I have roller skated in Muses, ridden in Muses, ridden in Nick's, ridden in King Arthur, and danced in Chewbacca's. Oh, my goodness. All of that 
And you've been a big, easy roller girl, too, Sally Asher. Now, not all at the same time. (laughs) Well, that would be really something. Well, take us through all of the crazy food and drink experiences you have had wearing those myriad Mardi Gras hats. So the very first parade I participated in was Muses uh, with the Big Easy Roller Derby. And our go-to food tended to be king cake and gummy bears. We were really looking for that kind of sugar high and adrenaline to get us through. Unfortunately, when you're on skates, you do not want to consume alcohol at all. We are roller skating through crowds, uh, dark darkness, behind horses occasionally, uh, people <laughs> throwing beads. So you want to be on, you know, on the top of your game as much as possible. So the tendency to eat an incredible amount of sugar tended to be our go-to item for that time. What else have you seen or consumed on parade routes? Each one's slightly different. Um, for the afternoon parades, I, I've done a lot of sandwiches and chips. You want something that's easy, that you can eat, that's not really going to be messy, that you could perhaps wrap or roll back into something. Um, the same goes for the evening. Evening tends to be a little bit more alcohol-related. You do, especially riding in muses, will have people who will hold up bottles of champagne, food, trying to bribe you for a shoe. Personally, I, I don't swap for alcohol. A lot of other people do. I'd just rather be on the on the safe side. I'm much more particular to signs. I know you're also a big part of Chewbacca's. What are they chewing in Chewbacca's, Sally? Well, in the Lagerettes, which I'm co-captain of, which is a, a dancing crew that's um, modeled after Princess Leia or General Leia, you could say, where we all dress like New Hope Leia, men, women, children, all ages, all genders, everyone's welcome. The tendency tends to go for mac and cheese. We like to carb up as much as possible. Zaps, chips, and mac and cheese tends to be the go-to. Sally, how long have you been a member? I'm one of the founders, so and, 10 years. And why did you found this group? Well, I've always loved Princess Leia. Um, the first time I saw her, I was just absolutely amazed where here's this feisty woman who's bossing around Han Solo and Chewbacca and t- you know telling them what to do and shooting and just being absolutely fabulous. So I had always wanted to put together a group of roller girls to dress up as Princess Leia and skate through the French Quarter for Halloween. Um, another roller girl, Brooke Etheridge, she had wanted to put together a Leia group for Chewbacca's. And when she mentioned it to another one of the roller girls, she said, oh, well, you need to talk to Sally because Sally's on the exact same wavelength. So that's how it kind of came to be. Originally, we jokingly called it the Big Easy Roller Derby Retirement Plan because <laughs> once a lot of the roller girls, you know, because you can only do roller derby so long as a lot of our bodies are, are telling us now. Um, and they wanted to still be active and involved with this great group of women. And so originally, we just did the call out to roller derby. It was predominantly roller derby. And then the second year, people seeing us marching started emailing us and asking how they could be more involved. And it just took off from from there. Sally, how many leisurettes are there now? We've had to cut it off, unfortunately. Um, We've had to kind of scale back our membership because we got 
such a large demand. But we tend to roll about, depending on people who dance one year and maybe need to sit the next year off, there tends to be about 115, 130 of us, which is a little more than we would like. But people get so enthusiastic about Princess Leia, and we tend to be softies sometimes. Sally, what other Mardi Gras food traditions do you participate in that might surprise people in your various carnival hats that you're always donning? I know there's been a lot of debate recently, knife in, knife out. I would like to say that I am a knife in the box for king cake. And I very, (laughs) very strongly follow. I do not eat king cake before 12th night. And I do not eat king cake after Mardi Gras. I'm with you, Sally Asher. Period. 100%. That is a rule that should not be broken. Amen. I don't ever want to see another king cake with golden black sugar for the saints. Nah. Nope. Done. No. That's that's Mardi Gras. Um, If you've looked back, you know, 2020, we have a lot of people who ate king cake early. Um, Every time, you know, every time they have something going wrong, people like to blame those who eat their king cake before 12th night. So just do the universe a favor. I go hit as many bakeries as I possibly can. Let's just go straight to the muses. How long have you been involved? I've been involved as a skater since, gosh, I think it was 2008 that we first skated in the muses parade. I started subbing a few years after that. And I'm now a member of Muses, which is kind of life goal realized. Well, tell me about your Muses experience. Do you all meet for lunch before you get on the floats? What is the day of Muses like for you and your crew? It's it's chaotic. Um, we usually meet hours and hours in advance, um, usually down at the convention center or somewhere else where we meet together and have kind of a mini ball. There's food, drinks, entertainment, bands. So you have over a 1,000 women all dressed up in all their blinky light gear, headdress. We have a headdress competition um, every year, and uh, the winner gets special accolades. And so, um, and usually last year, I believe it was Irma Thomas who judged the headdress competition. So you're already having a party sometimes five or six hours before the actual float happens before you get onto a float. It would seem to me that with that many hours of partying, it must be very hard to sustain. It is. So here you have hours and hours and hours that you've spent doing a lot of these original designs, thousands, often thousands of dollars you spent on these throws. And there's, you have to balance yourself. As you know, Mardi Gras is a marathon. You know, it's not a sprint. So there's a really fine line of being able to, you know, balance the festivities. And you're you're on a, a float. Um, most of the time I tend to be high up. So if you're very high up on a level and it's dark and people are screaming and yelling and they're trying to get your attention and you're moving down and everything's happening and you have friends on the route that you want to make sure that they get these special throws that you've made for them. So I like to be as... Um, sober as possible. Just 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 one cocktail or two maybe at the most is is okay for me because I want to enjoy the experience. 
Well, all the prep that goes into it, what about those shoes, Sally? Go ahead and give us a little reveal of what it really takes to be ready with the shoes for the muses. Well, I don't consider myself one of them, but there are some women in the organization that are artists, fine, fine, fine artists. Personally, um, I usually drive home to Washington State every year to visit with family. That is my time to scour all the Goodwills and all the thrift stores for high heel shoes. Because in New Orleans, you're competing with about 12, 1,500 women who are trying to find cheap used high heels because they do get expensive. So I, the last couple years, have driven out to Washington State and I have a cargo bag that goes on top of my SUV that I will some have, I think my record was 182 shoes. Oh. That I had been gathering up throughout the summer. So you have women who have special connections with thrift stores or, or donation. The shoes that you really want to get, the best shoes, I like to call them the stripper shoes. Um, <laughs> very, very, I personally love the very, very high stilettos, the kind of um, plastic kind of acrylic feeling to them because they're much easier to paint and to glitter. So the general process tends to first clean them. Sometimes if you have straps, you have to cut them off and then you spray them, usually like a base coat, um, a primer, and then you glitter, sometimes multiple, multiple times. And the secret to glittering the shoes, and this has been tried and tested by many, many, many muses, and I believe Virginia Saucy was the one who discovered this, but the best sealer for muses glitter shoes, so you keep your glitter on, is Aquanet hairspray. So once you have your base shoe glittered, you then spray it with Aquanet. And then after that dries, then you start applying glitter transfers, different ornaments, designs, decorations, NOLA craft culture, which is probably our favorite place to go. They also teach classes. The women who, the women who run this organization are amazing. They do, um, I took once an ice cream class, how to make your shoe look like an ice cream cone. The creativity that there is just absolutely amazing. But it is dangerous to go in. I always go in with a list, which I never, ever follow, because then <laughs> I always find about a dozen other things that I absolutely positively cannot live without. Um, charms, decorations, new, new glitter colors that they put in, tassels, trim, everything. They have it. They have it all. So there are hours and hours that go into these shoes that you bag and throw off the side of a moving float. Well, Sally, I would be remiss if I didn't close by saying, throw me a shoe, lady. <laughs> I will definitely throw you a shoe. Thanks, Sally. That was Sally Asher author, photographer, and reveler. Coming up next, we hear from Devin DeWolf, founder of the crew of Red Beans Parade, named for New Orleanians traditional Monday night dinner. Louisiana Eats returns after the break.
I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia's latest innovation makes life easy for today's smaller households. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. When artist Devin DeWolf moved to New Orleans after college, he felt an immediate bond with locals. It turned out they shared the same love of beans he had developed when he was an exchange student in Brazil. For his first Crescent City Halloween, Devin decided to live his legume love out loud and created a costume by gluing beans and rice to a suit. Later, he was inspired by the Mardi Gras Indians who create elaborate costumes with detailed beading work. Their artistry conjured an image in Devin's head. A Mardi Gras crew that would adorn their costumes, not with beads, but with beans. Thus, the crew of Red Beans was born. The inaugural procession took to the streets on Lune de Gras, the day before Mardi Gras in 2009. It consisted of 25 bean costume-clad marchers accompanied by a brass band. Within a couple of years, Camellia Brand joined the effort, donating hundreds of pounds of beans and a vintage Volkswagen thing, which was immediately turned into a bean mobile. The crew kept growing, and by 2020, it had become so large that it had been split up into two different parades. The next year, a third parade was added. When the city shut down early in the pandemic, the crew decided it was time to up the social aid part of its mission. First came Feed the Frontline, through which the Red Beans raised money to pay local suddenly closed restaurants, to prepare meals, and then hired suddenly unemployed musicians to deliver the food to suddenly overworked hospital personnel. Next came Feed the Second Line, with young musicians being paid to deliver groceries to older musicians and other culture bearers. The crew has continued to grow, and its social aid efforts have continued to expand. And the man who started it all, with a handful of beans and a hot glue gun, is back in our studio 
to tell us all about it. I'm Devin DeWolf, uh, founder and chief bean officer of the crew of Red Beans. Devin, it has been a long, long time, and I am so happy to be sitting across from you again in our Louisiana Eats studio. If I remember correctly, we first sat down together maybe 14 years ago. Could that be possible? Yeah, it's been a, it's been uh, quite a few years. Uh, things have evolved nicely, and um, yeah, I don't know. Time flies, right? Well, things have evolved in ways that I could not possibly have imagined. If we just look at the crew of Red Bean actual parade, pretty quickly it appeared that maybe you all got too many members, not a bad problem to have, and so then your other sub-crews were born, like the crew of Dead Beans. Would you take us through that evolution? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I've always wanted to have like a neighborhood-friendly parade, and then over the years it became really important to keep it kid-friendly. And to do that, you have to have um, like a smaller footprint. And so as we grew, the solution to this was really to copy ourselves. And so now today we have three parades that happen simultaneously. So our parades are three of them in three different neighborhoods in New Orleans at the exact same time. And it keeps it small and intimate and lovely. And I think, you know, why have a really big giant parade with 35 floats when you could just have three smaller parades that have the same footprint? It's just dispersed. Who are the other crews that grew to join Red Beans and where do they parade? So we have three parade routes, but the sub-crews themselves are evolving. So the Marini route has the Red Beans Parade, the original, the traditional, if I can say after 14 or 15 years. Uh, in Mid-City, we have a new group this year uh, that has started up that's uh, Asian and Vietnamese heavy, which I'm really excited about, um, Mung Beans. The Mung Beans. Yes. Um, and then in the Bywater, we have uh, Fei Zhao, which is a Brazilian-inspired uh, thing because uh, I love Brazil, and Brazil loves beans, and, you know, beans are obviously the thing we care most about. And this year, we're excited to welcome to that group uh, a, a new subcrew called Queer Beans. And they'll be, you know, marching alongside Fei Zhao and along that route, and it should be nice. Now, how many people number your whole organization now? Because with all this addition and this growth, who's involved? How many? This year, we're opening a community space. Um, it's called Beanlandia. And people can join Beanlandia, which is, in effect, kind of like joining the Crew of Red Beans community. So right now we have 1,100 people who have joined. Um, they pay every month whatever they want to be a member. And our goal is to increase that to about 2,000 or so folks. Um, and with that, we're going to create community programs. We're going to create things that actually try to make the city better. So our, our Beanlandia space... In the morning, it's a museum. In the afternoon, we want to create kid programming to get kids into positive stuff uh, so that they don't go down the bad, dark pathway. And then in the evening, it's like a social space, a, co a cultural center. Um, so we have 1,100 people who join that. 
And those people can also be in a parade if they want. And our parade numbers this year are a little lower than they were last year. Um, I think New Orleans actually experienced a population loss in the last two years that's been pretty significant. Um, I would guesstimate probably 30,000 people left our city. Um, and that impacted our crew. So we are probably going to be at um, 300 to 400 people parading uh, as parade members this year, uh, which is down from 500 the year before. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at. It's astounding. How in the world did you get this vision? How did the crew of Red Beans evolve into what truly essentially mirrors the spirit of a social aid and pleasure club? Yeah, well, I started it not with this grand vision, but uh, the first year I just thought it was going to be a great idea to have a bean parade on Lundi Gras because Red Beans on Monday. And um, after a few years, you know, I met my wife through this and all of my friends, basically my entire existence has basically come through this bean parade. Um, my children exist because I created a bean parade. I mean, it's wild, but it's true. And over the years, it's given me, you know, so much in my life that I started to look at it like, how can this thing become a force for good? Um, now, before COVID, we were pretty small. We had our three bean parades and we had 500 crew members and, you know, we maybe had a budget of $90,000. But then when COVID hit, um, our little neighborhood bean parade uh, created something called Feed the Frontline NOLA, which basically sought to raise money to feed healthcare uh, heroes during the first wave of COVID to send them super yummy food. And we started with 60 bucks. And six weeks later, we had raised a million dollars. And uh, I actually later found out this was by far the largest operation in America of its kind. So we did something nationally significant out of a little neighborhood being prayed. And then we kept going. We created an effort called Feed the Second Line, which really sought to create a stronger safety net and job opportunities for the culture of our city. And, um, you know, then we had Hurricane Ida. We had uh, so many other things that were thrown at New Orleans over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, the Little Bean Parade has just been able to truly be a force for good. Uh, and, you know, it's to the, to the tune of we've put, like, probably around $4 million back into the city. Um, I've helped support 45 restaurants, four coffee shops, 14 neighborhood bars, and 250 people have gotten a million dollars plus of jobs through the work that we've done. Uh, I've basically not paid myself through this um, because I'm really driven by how can we use this as a force for good. And so when I think about the future, uh, Beanlandia is attempting to create a resource for the community through our really strange bean tradition, our bean parade, it can actually be the thing that generates revenue that brings people together and further grows this force for good. And instead of responding to problems like, oh, a hurricane hit, let's respond to that. You know, what if we were preemptive? Uh, what if we anticipated the issues and worked towards them? And I think it's possible to do that. And I think it is possible to use uh, tourism 
and uh, our culture, our city's vibrant, beautiful, amazing culture uh, to make the city better. And, you know, the way I look at it is like, that's the purpose. Uh, and I, I jokingly call it the, the beaning of life. Devin, I love your beaning of life. What happened um, because of Hurricane Ida that helped shift focus? What did you all do after the hurricane? And what, what are your plans for future hurricanes? Well, yeah. So, again, I confuse people and everything gets confusing. So, um, Feed the Second Line, when I started it, I kind of instinctively knew it would be its own organization. So I set it up that way. I created a different board and I really made it more, um, like gave the power more to the black New Orleans community. And then I grew it uh, so that one day we could hire somebody to run it. And we've done that. We found an amazing, amazing woman named Denise Williams, who's now the executive director of Feed the Second Line. And um, anything, any idea or anything that's really connected to a safety net, it belongs there. So when Hurricane Ida hit, um, my house has solar panels and batteries. And my house, while my neighborhood had no power for 10 days, I was basically able to assist my neighbors um, because I had that stuff. Uh, and it just was eye-opening. So it helped um, kind of inspire the idea of an effort that we call Get Lit, Stay Lit, where we are trying to get all the restaurants in New Orleans, um, every single neighborhood, block by block, you know, you have a restaurant, they know how to cook food, they have food, they have coolers, they have fridges. If they have solar panels and batteries, then they can help their neighbors. And so we've, you know, in the last two years, we've been working diligently to install these systems. We've got uh, four done so far. Uh, we have funding for another probably six or seven that we're about to do. But we really do want to do this every single neighborhood all over the city. And that's uh, one of the various projects of Feed the Second Line. Um, and essentially, Feed the Second Line and the crew of Red Beans, they're separate organizations now. However, they're like sisters. They help each other. They support each other. They work together. To think that you have this vision to make it all happen through a combo of carnival and beans. Nothing brings us together like carnival or that Monday pot of red beans. So this just seems tailor-made for what we need. I mean, I don't see, uh, I just feel, feel like it's um, kind of my purpose and like why the bean parade is there. And I don't know. I don't really have a good way to explain it except that why else would this happen if not to be a force for good? And so I, I just wake up every day and I'm like, I'm just going to wake up and try to help my community in the way that I know how, which uh, turns out is a very weird bean parade and being obsessed with beans and how magical and wonderful they are and obviously delicious and tasty. But it really is a humble bean that can do a lot and can um, bring people together. And, you know, in a couple of years, I think the crew of Red Beans is going to have uh, hopefully a really good impact on the city. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity to try to do that. Thank you, Devin. Thank you for your inspirational work and your inspirational words. And let me be the very first to say, happy Lundegras. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Happy Carnival. 
That was Devin DeWolf, founder of the Crew of Red Beans, which will parade as usual on Lundigras, Monday, February 12th in New Orleans. To learn more, visit crewofredbeans.org. With long days of Mardi Gras partying ahead, how can you be sure the food you're serving remains safe? Stay tuned, and when we come back, I'll share those important guidelines. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Blue Plate Mayonnaise, the beloved secret ingredient of Louisiana kitchens for over 90 years. Blue Plate's rich, creamy mayo is crafted from their timeless recipe, just oil, vinegar, and only the egg yolks. Blue plate mayo, that's the good stuff. And from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more, Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on Louisiana's North Shore. Experience the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How can you be sure your food is safe to eat during the long days of Mardi Gras partying? Keep hot food hot and cold food cold. Hot means 140 degrees. Cold should be a minimum of 40 degrees. You've got about two hours at room temperature before bacteria begins to develop at risky levels. So only put out as much food as you expect your guests to consume within that two-hour period. Then replace it with fresh food because a tummy ache 
is never a good party favor. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Down in New Orleans where the blues were born It takes a cool cat to blow a horn On LaSalle and Rampart Street The combos play with the mambo beat The Mardi Gras mambo, mambo, mambo Mardi Gras mambo, mambo, mambo Mardi Gras mambo Down in New Orleans Carnival is not just about parades and parties. There are elements of sociology, religion, theology, and folklore behind every float, mask, and meal. Few people understand this better than Errol Laborde, author of Mardi Gras, Chronicles of the New Orleans Carnival, and a brand new book, When Rex Met Zulu and Other Chronicles of the Mardi Gras Experience. Just after he published the first volume, Errol joined us for a passionate discussion of carnival time and the history of Louisiana's most renowned cultural celebration. There's a chapter that I did, one of my my favorite chapters, and it's about the 1870s. And and the significance of, of, of that decade was that was the year of the first Rex Parade. Now, by that time, there was already two parades in New Orleans. There was uh, Comus and Twelfth Night Revelers. But Rex sort of really put Mardi Gras on the map in, in that it was the first day parade. And with Rex, you created this character who was the king of carnival. And with Rex, Mardi Gras in New Orleans really began to grow into a major event. The same year, Mobile, which already had a parading tradition, created a king of its carnival called King Felix. <laughs> and Memphis started a carnival. And there were several towns that in 1872, out of the blue, were creating carnivals. Part of it, I realized, had to do with uh, Reconstruction and the Civil War. It was a bit like after Katrina here, that there were people saying, hey, look, come back to our town. We're rebuilding. We're doing things. Here's something special to see. But also, I discovered, though, that there were some towns in Europe. For example, a town called Via Reggio. Uh, Via Reggio had an ancient carnival tradition, but in 1873, it reorganized its carnival and made it more of a marketable sort of thing. And in Nice, which isn't far from Via Reggio, just right up the coast and and over the French uh, border, they'd been celebrating carnival since the 1200s, but also in that same time period, they developed like the Nice Carnival Association. So all of a sudden you see, not just in the United States, but in Europe and other places, by the 1870s, creating formalizing, really structuring a carnival. And the common denominator, because obviously the Civil War is not a factor over in Europe or Reconstruction, Mm -hmm. the common denominator is the railroad. Because by then the passenger railroad is becoming onto its own. I mean, there have been railroads, but there's there's developing passenger railroad markets. If you got a passenger railroad, you got to create destinations. And with the first Rex Parade, Passenger railroads, you know, printed flyers and they had them in uh, train stations up and down the line. Come to New Orleans and see the parade of the of the King of the Carnival. This was the era of the Industrial Revolution and steam power, and it was just part of, of that that people were becoming more mobile, and there was ways for people to get around. And carnivals were a good way to mobilize people and give them something to come in and, and to discover. 
and discover it they did. Since then, Carnival has become a mainstay in Louisiana that's been celebrated by costumed revelers despite world wars, police strikes, and even the aftermath of that big weather event in 2005. Through it all, Carnival's developed into a major economic engine in the state, due in part to Super Cruise, Bacchus, and Endymion, and the old-line traditions of Proteus and Rex. It might be an understatement to call some of their food celebrations decadent. There was a float group for one crew that for many years had its own party at Antoine's. Mm -hmm. And one of its objectives was to have a party that was as expensive as possible. (laughs) right? And so this crew would get together in one room, and they would order for the group, you know, right off the, you know, the, the, the oysters and the souffle potatoes and everything. They'd just serve and they'd have wine and they'd just dance. And they'd have dancing girls of various sorts, too. <laughs> and then they would march. This was back when the uh, parade was leaving from the uh, auditorium. Mm-hmm. They'd have these guys with American Fire wagons and they'd pull the wagons. And the wagons had ice chests full of champagne. And they would march to the auditorium and get ready for the parade. So by the time that they got on their floats, they were fueled with an afternoon dinner at Antoine's plus champagne along the way. Well, that's actually a pretty common tradition that a lot of the old line groups have luncheons before their big ride. You know, at, at the carnival balls, it used to be a great tradition back when they were at the municipal auditorium that they'd have these huge parties backstage at the ball. Turtle soup was very common, and in, in, in the mythology behind turtle soups, I mean, maybe it's true, was that turtle soup had a sobering effect. And so that was always something that you'd serve, and there'd be party sandwiches, and it was a big, big deal. That, that, that turtle soup, it's always sobering when it's got that shot of sherry yeah, in it, yeah, huh? Yeah, that always helps. That so, makes yeah. good sense. <laughs> but then what happened under a previous city administration, they gave the food concession to some guy who just jacked up the prices tremendously, mm-hmm. and they made it mandatory that you had to get it from this guy. So the crew said, well, no, we're not going to do that anymore. And now you go backstage at the ball, and they may have, like, peanuts or something and some drinks. (laughs) But more often what they'll do is that the crew will meet earlier that day, perhaps at a place like Galatoire's or Antoine's and Arno's, on Lundi Gras, there's a big Proteus lunch Uh at Antoine's. And uh, you walk by there, and it's such a juxtaposition. You see your Mardi Gras street people, and then you see your Proteus people, the Proteus ladies who are always dressed very nice. The Proteus guys who got the uh, the signature uh, red tie. Yes. And they're just walking together. And, you know, it used to be that after the Proteus luncheon that uh, quite often they'd go to another bar nearby. Somebody at Antoine's got smart, and they put a, a bar count in front of, in front of Antoine's. And so uh, they get them inside and outside now. Errol, sometimes they throw food from the floats, don't they? The law is, if you throw food, it has to be packaged. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you can't just go and throw a hot dog or a piece of chicken or something like that. So throwing food is not really encouraged. But one thing that has become a tradition is moon pies. And that is not unique to New Orleans. That probably comes through Mobile because uh, moon pies are uh, were developed out of Chattanooga. And so mm-hmm. if there is one edible throw that you could kind of link with Mardi Gras, it's probably the moon pie. What I'm trying to advocate, and really getting nowhere with doing this, for watching the Rex Ball, Yes. if you're at home, I think that the perfect supplement to have while watching it is moon pie and champagne. Okay. Uh, so I, I really I really <laughs> urge people, while Rex and the Ball, have a couple of moon pies, 
and have a glass of champagne and watch the Rex Ball with that and can't ask for anything more. I loved that you had an epilogue that you entitled Stir Me Something, Mister. Right. That's a great line. I really yeah. like that. And in that, first you list what you consider the 16 top foods of the Louisiana Mardi Gras. So I was hoping that we could um, chew that over together. Okay, it was totally uns- unscientific. It was, it was me <laughs> just kind of trying to figure this out. And keeping in mind, here I am talking about the Louisiana Mardi Gras, which is different from the New Orleans Mardi Gras. It's not the same kind of history or sociology or that sort of thing, but it's a, you know, it's a parade. There are different destinations for the Cajun Mardi Gras. Different towns have their own celebration. There's subtle variations in between them, but they all borrow from what is called the begging tradition of carnivals. And this begging tradition is really ancient. It goes back to medieval Egypt, where peasants uh, during a certain day of the year would go to the, the nearby castles and they would essentially beg by putting on some sort of entertainment. The lords in the, in the castle would give them a chicken or some food things. And the lords probably said, you know, this is probably better than a revolution, you know, so let's do this. So there is a long-established tradition of people going and begging for their supper, I mean, providing their entertainment. I guess perhaps uh, our trick-or-treat kind of, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, developed in that spirit. And, and so look at the Louisiana Mardi Gras, which, which to me is a little bit different from the New Orleans Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. I had, first of all, barbecue. Uh, that's a big thing during Mardi Gras, especially on the parade route. And increasingly in New Orleans Mardi Gras on the St. Charles route, boudin, okay? Uh-huh. Now, boudin is not a really big New Orleans food. I mean, it's becoming more popular. But to me, it's a great parade food because it's it's, it's contained. I mean, a good sausage, uh-huh. I mean, you can just hold it and you can just chomp into it, put a little mustard on it. And so and so I, I think at the other destinations around the state uh, that boudin is a good parade food. Something else to put in, though, is uh, is cracklins. Uh-huh. Uh, which would also be a good party. I mean, anywhere where you're doing pork of any kind, especially if you're doing it from a boucherie, I mean, you got cracklings. And cracklings, you can also just bring a bag to the parade and eat it like potato chips, too. It's not what you call uh, a health food, but I say like three or four cracklings a year is okay. From 2014, that was Errol Laborde, author of Mardi Gras, Chronicles of the New Orleans Carnival. And the brand new When Rex Met Zulu and other chronicles of the Mardi Gras experience. Both volumes are available online and in bookstores everywhere. Look for Errol and his wife, Peggy Scott Laborde, on Mardi Gras evening when WYES televises the Rex Ball and the meeting of the courts, the culmination of New Orleans carnival season. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. We'd like to welcome our new sponsor, Blue Plate Mayonnaise. When your poor boys, potato salads, and rumelade need that authentic New Orleans flavor, Blue Plate Mayo, that's the good stuff. 
And big thanks to our returning flagship sponsor, Dickie Brennan and Company. Pascal's Manali Restaurant, uptown on Napoleon Avenue, is now serving continuously Tuesday through Saturday, 11.30 a.m. till 9 p.m., where Uptown Tea is waiting for you at New Orleans' oldest stand-up oyster bar. Louisiana Eats is also made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>